it often feels like when you're writing high school, there's these ghosts that are haunting your program, where these structures are kind of showing up, but you can't quite put your finger on exactly what's going on, and category theory is the one who's doing the haunting. Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Co-Free Coffee Cast. I'm your host, Sandy McGuire, and today I'm joined by Reed Mullinix. Reed is a research programmer at the University of Minnesota, where he works on proof assistance for cubicle type theory. I'm hoping to figure out what that means today. I met Reed when he answered my call to meet cool FP people as I traveled around the world, but we've been collaborating closely ever since. Thank you so much for joining me today, Reed. I've got a question for you. What the hell is a proof assistant? Like, what does it do and why might I want to use one? Before getting into this, I, I think it's important to really discuss what a proof actually is. Um, because I feel like a lot of people have sort of misunderstandings or at the very least no idea um, what a proof actually consists of. Um, so the big idea here is that we essentially want to establish that some statement is, is true or provide some sort of evidence for its truth. Um, and the way we normally do that mathematically is we construct some sort of rigorous argument. So where we start from some premises and we follow a bunch of logically valid like, deductive steps, and then we finally derive our conclusion. And what a proof assistant is sort of does two things. The first component is uh, we write our proof in some sort of formal language that, you know, for our intents and purposes, looks like a programming language. And then the proof assistant will walk through all of our steps and say, yes, this is a valid proof. Um, you didn't make any sort of bad logical jumps and, and everything sort of checks out. Um, and it also helps us construct the proofs. So while we're in the middle of things, um, these proofs can get quite hairy. Um, and it helps to kind of have all the context loaded up in the computer so you can sort of see all of the hypotheses we have, you know, what we're trying to prove so we don't get lost, um, that sort of thing. Uh, and these are quite important tools, I think, for two big purposes. Um, the first is that uh, mathematical proofs have gotten enormous these days. Uh, if you look at some uh, papers that have come out recently, some of them will be hundreds and hundreds of pages long of just intense, gnarly proofs that really only a, a tiny group of people can really check the validity of. Uh, and doing so involves a huge amount of time and effort. And we're human. We make mistakes. Um, and, and things slip through the cracks. Generally, we're able to repair the proof somewhat, but it, it's still a bit sketchy to have all this sort of floating around um, without uh, being able to you know, step through and, and verify it all. Uh, and the second, which is a bit closer to me personally, is for education. Um, going back to the previous point, a lot of people don't really know what constitutes a proof. So having a tool sort of there to handhold them and say, yes, what you're doing is correct. The arguments you're making make sense. Great job. Um, and also to assist you through the process so you don't get lost. That's, that's super valuable. Um, and I think can provide really great educational opportunities, both for um, students of mathematics um, and programmers as well, obviously. Whenever I was doing math in university, it wasn't ever clear to me what constituted a good argument, where I would just do some work and it looked convincing to me, and then the TAs would disagree and I wouldn't get a good mark on it. The way I think about it is if you had the world's slowest compiler 
where you submit your program or your proof, um, and then you wait a couple of weeks to get uh, feedback on it and say, yes, this compiled, great. Or <laughs> no, you made a mistake on line 10, go back and try again. Um, so the iteration times can, can really suck. Um, and if you're trying to self-learn, there is no iteration time. You're kind of going out into the woods um, where there's no trails and, and you have no map. So it can feel a lot of the times like it's just very confusing and you, you're sort of lost and you have really no idea what you're doing, um, if it's correct or not. Do you know of any cases in which this would have solved a, a problem? Have there already been like any proofs that have gotten into the mathematical canon that turned out to be false later on and a bunch of work needed to be thrown away? Or is it more of a, a precaution rather than a solution to the problem? So generally what happens is, uh, I don't know if you know this, but mathematicians are generally pretty smart people. And they have pretty good intuitions as to why things are true. So most mistakes tend to be quite technical in nature, but the general sort of intuition is correct, so they can be repaired. If we look back at the proof of um, Fermat's last theorem, uh, there was a, an issue in the argument that took, I think, two years to correct. It was incredibly technical, and it required a, a pretty large group of experts to get into the middle of this 100-page proof or so and correct these extremely technical mistakes. So if um, Andrew Wiles had a, a great tool working along with him, we would have been able to catch that a lot earlier and saved, you know, a couple of years of extremely technical work. So yes, it's rarely the case that proofs are totally, you know, irreparable, but mistakes do happen and they do require a high level of expertise to spot and high level of expertise to repair. I'm interested in your interest in proof assistance and have heard a rumor that you've been working on them forever, uh, even before you were doing it professionally. Is it true that you wrote your own proof assistant in the university to help with your math homework? What did that look like and how did that help? So at the time I was sort of playing around with these tools and I, I totally fell in love with them. I, I've said this many times to um, people who know me, but they're truly the world's best uh, puzzle video game. So I, I just was totally enamored with them. And I thought, you know what? I'm a programmer, I can, I can write my own. And at the time I was taking a, a class in um, sort of introduction to formal proof. And it's like, this is the perfect use case for these tools but I need to turn in my homework as like LaTeX files. Uh, but most of them are, are quite simple, like inductive arguments or just manipulating sort of propositional logic. Um, so they're quite easy to automate. Uh, so I wrote sort of a, a tactic framework and had it synthesize LaTeX proofs. Um, so you could write out all your proofs using like tactic steps. So you'd be like, introduce this, and then I bet my tool can solve this automatically. So I'm just type auto, and then instead of a like poor language term, like you get in like Kafka or Agda or something, you, we got out LaTeX um, that you could then submit as your, your homework. And generally it required tidying up because the whole thing was, you know, essentially a monster hack. Uh, I don't know if you've ever tried to programmatically generate LaTeX, but uh, my advice is don't. <laughs> um, but it, it, it was fun. And that was actually the, uh, the only 100% I ever got in my university career. Did anyone ever catch on? Oh, I talked to the professor about sort of using these tools at the, the start of the, the term um, and that she said, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I've seen these before, but, you know, please, please don't submit cockproofs uh, as your homework. Um, but I, I think writing the tool taught me a lot more about proof than doing the proofs, whatever. So I, I think it would be interesting to have a class on, on formal proof for computer scientists where during the, the progress of the class, you develop a proof assistant. It's you know, quite small and restricted to a quite simple subset, but it really does teach you, you know, what these things actually are, uh, what valid manipulations are, because you do have to program, 
program the market. To, to switch topics a little bit, you said offline that, quote, I feel like I managed to make the computer an extension of my brain. I'm wondering what you meant by that. Most Haskell programmers have this sort of moment of epiphany where they're able to run the type checker in their head. And I'm not super into Rust. Uh, I wish, wish I was, but uh, it seems like Rust developers have a similar thing for the borrow checker. You can kind of just look at an expression and then, you know, your brain sort of lights up and says, yes, this is good, or no, this is bad, and here's where the issue is. Um, once you've sort of invested yourself in a proof assistant, you kind of gain the same ability, um, just with math papers and, and proofs instead. Uh, so if you're reading something, you kind of have this little thing in the back of your head that's, that's parsing expressions, thinking, how would I sort of construct this proof? You know, where the difficulty is going to be? And if something kind of looks sketchy, it becomes quite obvious. Whereas, you know, earlier I felt I was in these situations a lot where I'd be reading something that's like, yeah, uh-huh, I guess that kind of makes sense. Uh-huh, yeah, this is confusing. And I don't know if it's confusing because it's confusing or if I just don't understand it. So I feel like this has really given me the ability to parse things a lot easier and, and a better smell check, sort of. Does that often work? I find that when I'll, I'll be reading papers or a textbook or something, and maybe something will be wrong in it, but my my internal experience is that, oh, I just am probably like not smart enough to understand this right now. Does having sort of fluency in type checking help solve that problem? I think it does. Um, and as a last resort, you can always open up whatever your favorite tool is and type it in, and then the computer will say, yes, this is good, or no, this is nonsense. Um, so there is sort of an escape hatch uh, there, but I, I do think it is pretty reliable for the most part. Um, and the other thing it, it sort of gives you, which I think is slightly more valuable, is um, a sense of aesthetics. Like if you see some proof that's super involved and gnarly and has all these crazy arguments, and you think about trying to program that into a proof assistant, you immediately are going to throw up your hands and go, this sounds horrible. This is going to take me like months or years to actually complete. Um, so you start trying to consider, okay, if I were to write this, how would I approach the problem? Um, so from that perspective, it sort of goes from like understanding to actually sort of interpreting this and playing around with it yourself. Um, in a similar vein, you can think of like algorithms, you know, you can have some terrible algorithms as a total hack versus the beautiful, elegant one. It's you know, lovely to reason about and all that. Um, so I, I think there's a parallel there. Do elegant proofs work better in some sense? I'm not sure if I really know what I mean by that, but it feels like when I'm writing an elegant program, it, it has fewer edge cases and it has usually fewer bugs because it's based on something more fundamental. Is that, is that true in proofs as well? Yes. The main thing here, quite similar to Haskell, is it's questions of compositionality. We want to design things such that all of our sort of developments compose together in these beautiful steps so everything just sort of follows naturally and you don't need to get super involved every time you want to perform any sort of step of deduction or something. Um, and a lot of the time, this is all about sort of careful choice of definitions. Um, we can choose some sort of involved thing that's kind of horrible to reason about, or we can sort of change our perspective and say, okay, what's really going on here? Can I sort of take a step back and abstract over some of these details and consider something that's sort of fundamentally simpler, uh, throw away all the unnecessary stuff and, and really get at the meat of what's going on here. And by doing that, the problems generally kind of just fall apart. Uh, all the complexity can dissolve 
And uh, you're, you're left with these extremely simple composable proofs um, that are just light years, just loads of magnet or orders of magnitude simpler to deal with. Um, and, and I find that quite rewarding. Um, and it really provides a, a good sense of understanding. And you've, you've realized uh, I can sort of write this in a better way because you've, you've really gotten at the core of what's going on. Is an analogy there picking the right types for an algorithm where if you have the right type, just everything falls out of it? It is actually literally the same thing. These are dependently type systems, essentially. And our definitions are, for the most part, types. So it is literally choosing the correct type and the correct representation for that type so as to that everything follows easily. So you are exactly correct there. I, I want to dig more into that in a moment, but first, some idle curiosity. And that's, uh, have you ever tried doing proof assistance for like non-mathy things? D like with relationships or jobs or nutrition or something like that? And if so, how did it work? I feel like this is sort of the classic programmer nerd snipe, where it's like, I know how to use computers, I know how to use all these tools, I'm going to apply them to every single thing in my life. And for me, the two things I, I tried doing this for were, you know, like nutrition and running. And both of these failed miserably. Um, you end up spending all this time sort of writing everything that you did down in whatever organizational system and sort of formalizing all these hierarchies and trying to make everything just elegant and beautiful. Um, and you spend so much time doing this and it's just so non-productive. But because you're doing work and sort of organizing things, the part of your brain that sort of likes this stuff is like, yes, you're getting so much done. But really, it's just wasted work and, you know, you're not getting anything done, truly. So it's a boondoggle, in my opinion. Earlier you were saying that math is the best video game. I'm wondering how did you get good at math? Is the first step to getting good at something just like to make it fun? Oh yeah, the way I, I sort of operate is I'm totally content to spend huge amount of time like, doing something as long as it's engaging and fun. Mm -hmm. um, and specifically if there's sort of fast feedback, that's just awesome. So yeah, if you're able to sort of make things not a total slog. Um, and you're able to sort of get into that quick feedback loop of, you know, I'm going to try and solve something. I'm presented with an issue. Okay, I can, you know, take another step to solve that. Um, it's far more enjoyable and you learn far quicker than if you just sort of sit there, think really hard and go, oh, I guess that's kind of right. Okay, I guess I'm just going to move on. It's yeah, a little fishy. So I, I do think that a, the fun, and B, the fast feedback make a huge difference. Is there something about math that is sort of fundamentally interesting to you? I, I want to say yes, and I want to say no at the same time. Um, on one hand, these things do feel sort of very fundamental um, and are like an excellent way of sort of thinking about either concrete problems or just sort of like general structures, uh, which is all, you know, quite lovely and all that. But at the same time, it's all totally made up. You can't go outside and, you know, go hunting around in nature and be like, aha, a monoid bush. Let's <laughs> pick all the monoids. That's my dinner for tonight. You know, problem solved. Um, so it, it's ultimately um, a fiction, but it's a useful fiction and it's an entertaining fiction. So I, I'm totally content with that. Can you tell me what you're currently working on in your, your day job? What's the problem and how are you going about it? And like, what would progress look like? So I work on CoolTT, which is a uh, research-grade uh, proof assistant for this thing called Cartesian Cubicle Type Theory. We'll probably get into the specifics of what all those words mean later. Um, but right now, I'm specifically thinking about uh, three things, which are 
records, modules, and how do we structure like algebraic data types, which I might call inductive types for reasons, but you hear me say that, think ADTs. Um, and sort of the problem statement is this. Uh, a lot of the times um, in proof assistance, we have sort of these large bodies of work um, and we need to organize all of this. And, and the fact that we've gotten to this point where organization is an issue, it's a fantastic problem to have, right? That means we're able to be productive in the tools. We're able to have you know, a large amount of people using the tools. Uh, so fantastic issue to have. However, if you've used any of these before, um, you probably run into the issue where the organization's kind of iffy to deal with. Um, especially when it comes to things like records where we don't have like record extensibility in most systems. So if I want to say like, here's what it means to be a monoid and here's what it means to be like uh, a group or something, I need to duplicate a bunch of work or nest fields inside of things. It's just extremely unpleasant um, and a huge amount of boilerplate. Uh, and the same goes for the difference between like, this is a monoid, and this is a proof that a specific thing is a monoid. So you need to duplicate your entire algebraic hierarchy twice, sometimes three times to get this done, um, which is, is not great. Um, on the other hand, uh, we have sort of algebraic data types, which also have this extensibility problem. Um, just sort of in the same way we would with Haskell if you want like extensible sum types for errors or whatever. But, here it'd be like extensible sum types for syntax trees or extensible sum types for you know, free doodads or whatever. Um, so we, we run into the same sort of extensibility issues here as well. Um, and also when you're in a dependently type setting and you want to think about sort of problems of modularity, um, it sort of makes sense to think about like a record or a dependently typed record and a module are sort of one and the same. So if we solve the problem with records, we sort of solve the problem for modules as well. So all of these sort of issues seem to have this nexus point where if we're able to sort of crack that nut, everything else will sort of follow uh, quite, quite naturally. And, and that's what I'm trying to crack right now. Can I pause you for a second? It's not immediately clear to me what the connection between modules and records is. Would you mind just elaborating on that for a moment? If we think about like what a module is in a piece of software, it's essentially just a collection of types and functions over those types, right? Um, and if we have a dependently typed record, that's a thing with a bunch of fields, right? Where the fields further down can depend on the things earlier in the record, right? So we can think about like taking a module, which is sort of the same sort of dependent ordered collection of a bunch of things, right? And writing that same thing as a big record, right? So we take all the types and we add those as sort of fields in our, our record and all the functions, we add those as fields in our record. Um, it's, it's sort of the same idea of let's scrap your type classes, just sort of taken up a whole level um, to sort of encompass the, the module system as a whole. Right. And this is sort of nice because if we think about them as records, all these features that we would normally have to sort of hard code into our module system can be programmable. Um, and we can manipulate modules as if they were just values, uh, which is a huge win. Um, 
both from an implementer perspective, I don't need to think about every single thing you would possibly want to do with a module and enumerate them in my module system, um, and also from a user perspective. If you want to do some crazy stuff, uh, crazy metaprogramming with modules, it's, it's just valuable programming. There's no you know, weird module language that you need to learn that's kind of totally different and has all these arbitrary restrictions. Now you're saying your, your current job is to try and make these three features the same, like records and types and modules, is that correct? We're trying to solve the extensibility problem and the, the lack of programmability of all three of these things, uh, of records, of modules, and of uh, inductive data types. What does programmability of inductive data types mean? GHC generics would be what I would consider sort of programmability of data types. The ability to reflect on a data type and do generic programming just on the structure of the thing, which is, I don't know if you've used GHC generics, um, it's useful, it's extremely useful to be able to sort of work structurally over um, data types and just sort of define things for free as opposed to having to write the boilerplate every single time. Um, and this is especially true for uh, sort of dependently typesettings. If I want to prove something about sort of some sort of inductive thing, it'd be really nice if I could just talk about the class of all inductives of a specific shape um, and use that to sort of automatically derive uh, functions and theorems. One of the issues with GHC generics is that it's beside the original types, where I have this extra type family that constructs this thing that reifies the types. But like that is a different thing than the type itself. Is that where you're getting with this? Yes, that that is it. So if you think about like data types generally and records as well, I, I should mention they're sort of separate from the the rest of the system, right? Like I can't have um, a function that sort of returns an anonymous data type, right? That's that's not something we can do. We can write something like that with like. Uh, functor fixed points and all these combinators, but I don't know if you've done that recently. It's not very like fun or readable. Um, so the idea is to sort of get the best of both worlds, where we get this sort of first class nature of, of inductive data types and, and not relegate them to this. I can only define them at the top level, and then you know I have to do all this shenanigans to do reflection and, and all that, um, while also retaining the usability of the original. Uh, encoding and not having to deal with sort of functor fixed points and all these sort of combinators uh, by hand, because uh, that is basically unusable, especially at scale. And so how do you go about making progress on this? Like, like how, do you, how do you organize your thinking and what is, what is like doing research here look like? My guiding principle here is how can we think about these things categorically? Um, what, what are the semantics? Because if you want to design a system, you need to sort of think about what the meaning of everything actually is. If you don't have that, you're just sort of tacking all these ad hoc bits on and then just like praying to God that everything sort of works out nicely and that you didn't miss anything. But once you have sort of an understanding of sort of the semantics of everything, it's quite simple to sort of look at what you want to do and say, okay, well, what does this mean from the semantics? Like, how would I encode that there? And then use those insights to sort of add things back into your, your system concretely. Um, so that sort of process of, of thinking about the semantics, gaining insight there, and then sort of bringing that back into the more concrete world, um, that's sort of been my guiding methodology as of late. 
And so you're approaching this categorically. It's not entirely clear to me exactly what category theory is, and I'm not really looking for a tutorial necessarily, but um, how does category theory help? So the whole point of category for theory for me is it's how, how do we think about things in sort of an, an isomorphism invariant way. Um, now that's two very scary words that are put right next to each other um, and probably raises even more questions. But for me, that means how do we think about things in a way that isn't sort of tied to their underlying representations? Because um, once we start thinking about how things are implemented concretely, we can get sort of bogged down in the details and the specifics of this one encoding that we've chosen. Um, so by sort of moving to the domain of category theory, where everything is sort of naturally, you know, we can't look at the internal representations because that's just not part of our language. Um, things are much easier to think about and it's much easier to realize, okay, what's really fundamental to the structure here and what's sort of accidental. Um, so for this specific problem, we want to sort of phrase things in this, this categorical language and then we, we sort of realize exactly what is going on. Cool. That, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Fine. My life is a lot easier when I'll use sort of semantic types that describe a number rather than the number itself because maybe it's indexed in a different system or something like that. And so if I, if I can describe things based on their meaning rather than their implementation, my life is a lot easier in programming. And it sounds like this is the same idea, but sort of mathematically? Yes, exactly. You don't want to sort of get bogged down in the, uh, the mathematical bits that everything's built on top of, because that's, A, there's a lot of mathematical bits, and B, it's easy to sort of miss the forest for the trees. Category theory is rather scary to me, and I suspect probably to a lot of our listeners as well. It feels like the, the category theory people have just sort of gone off into the weeds of abstraction, and I'm sure there's a lot of value there, but it's, it seems to be quite hard to communicate back to us, to you know, mere mortals. In your eyes, what, what makes a good abstraction of a problem, and how do you know that you're on the right track? Yes, a lot of it can be quite abstract, and I feel like a lot of that has to do with we're using tools um, a lot of the time that weren't developed for our purposes specifically. We're sort of picking things off the shelf that were developed, you know, 50 years ago or so for some algebraic topology problem, and then trying to sort of wrap our heads around that sort of sands the original context, um, which can be difficult. Uh, learning the abstraction without the motivation is, is going to be hard, uh, regardless of the situation. Um, but for me, what sort of makes a good abstraction as opposed to um, you know, a not so good one is that everything should sort of, the properties that we want should be extremely obvious. Um, and the operations that we want should be extremely straightforward to define. And the things that we necessarily don't care about um, should either be not possible to, to even talk about or probably extremely annoying to talk about. Um, in the same way that like if we're trying to describe or design some sort of API for something, you know, we generally want to like pick data structures and algorithms that are really good for the, the purpose that we need. Um, as opposed to sort of just trying to cobble together, you know, the biggest API possible that could describe every single combination of things that someone might potentially want to do. Um, so it, it's really about sort of filing down and, and sort of realizing these are the things I actually care about. These are the things I actually need to be able to do. And these are the things I need to be able to reason about. Um, and then hunting based off those criteria, as opposed to just sort of 
trying to grab whatever doodad off the shelf um, that looks like it might potentially fit the uh, the problem domain. Whenever I try to go through category three books, I, I often get bogged down by just like how many widgets there are. I'm wondering if applying category theory in real life is sort of just learning enough widgets so that you can start composing bigger things out of them in interesting ways. Maybe a different way of phrasing this is like, what does category theory look like when you're actually using it in anger? So I feel like the difficulty here is that it's we're truly learning a new language. And to be able to even form sentences in our new language, we sort of need to learn the nouns and the verbs and the adjectives. Um, so there's this definitely point of pain um, where we feel like we're talking like some fourth grader who can, you know, kind of talk, sort of. I guess fourth grader might be a little bit old. Uh, let's go with toddler. Um, we can form sentences, but they feel really awkward. And it's just like difficult. And we might say things kind of wrong or use not quite the right phrasing. And it's it's it just feels clumsy. Um, so we need to sort of get past that layer into like a point of somewhat fluency, and then things become much easier. Um, so I, I don't have a great answer of how to overcome that initial sort of barrier of, of learning the language. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to uh, practice. Um, a, a good sort of learning resource um, that provides good intuitions. Um, but at the end of the day, um, like learning a language, it's, it's a lot easier if you're sort of immersed in it as opposed to showing up to class, you know, uh, every like twice a week and then never speaking the language outside of, you know, class. It's going to be much more difficult as opposed to if you move to some, some country and then you're sort of forced to speak it and you're surrounded by it, it becomes much simpler. Under this metaphor, are, are sort of categorical widgets like cones and functors, and I don't, I don't even, I don't know, widgets like that, just that fill up the books, are these more like sentences in the languages, or are they sort of fundamental nouns? Those, I would say, are fundamental nouns. Um, cones, they're, they're on the border, but especially things like functors, natural transformations, uh, limits, co-limits, those are sort of the atomic parts of the language. If you don't have those, it's going to be very difficult to, to really say anything meaningful. Um, but sort of as you uh, reach more maturity with, with sort of these concepts, um, it's totally fair to see some chapter and just go, I don't care about this. This is not applicable to me. Um, I am never going to need to use this. Uh, in the same way that if, you know, say I'm learning French or something, do I really need to learn all of the French terms for like road repair? Probably not. I'm not going to need to do road repair in France. Um, so I can just let that stuff slide. If it comes into my life, I will learn it. Um, but I don't need to go and, and work through every single chapter of a book. Um, it is totally fair to read things non-linearly um, and only go back once you realize you need something. What's the equivalent of knowing whether this particular widget is a, a term for road repair? Is there a way in which you can identify that for yourself, or do you sort of need to go and ask the elders? The way, the way I can normally tell is I, I try and get an intuition for things. When I'm reading stuff, my first thing that goes through my mind is um, sort of what is this? what are they trying to say? What is this person trying to communicate to me? Because they came up with this thing for a reason. 
Like people don't just like sit back there and think really hard and just write random stuff down. Um, generally, there's a reason someone invented something. So what is that and why are they presenting it to me? Um, and if I can't think of a good intuition for it, um, or I can't quite see the context in which it'd be useful, generally for me, that's a sign that it, this isn't meant for me right now. Um, this was sort of meant for a different person in a different place doing different things. And it's totally fine that I am sort of not the target audience. If that becomes me in the future, I know where to go now. What would you say is the importance of mathematical analogies? So at the end of the day, you're going to need to fit all of this stuff in your head. And for me, analogies are sort of a compression algorithm for doing that, right? If I can think of this sort of cute little sort of analogy or intuition for something that is sort of expressed in a sentence, I can generally remember it a lot easier than some like, uh, this is really technical and involved. Um, and maybe I might forget the exact details of something, but if I can kind of get the vibes of what's going on, it's, it's a lot easier to sort of remember in the long term and, and actually be able to get use out of the idea as opposed to just, you know, having your eyes glaze over reading this thing eight times and then you walk away and then 15 minutes later, it's totally gone. So I, I think as you're reading, trying to do this sort of compression process such that everything fits in your head is, is super important. Bartosz says that category theory is to Haskell as Haskell is to assembly language. And that's extremely inspiring if it's true. Do you agree with that characterization? Uh, from that perspective, yes, 100%. I mean, there it often feels like when you're writing Haskell, there's sort of these ghosts that are haunting your program, um, where these structures are kind of just showing up, but you can't quite put your finger on exactly what's going on. Um, and category theory is the one who's doing the haunting for the most part. I'm not sure I have that experience of having ghosts in my code. Would you mind articulating that a little further? Like, when might that occur, or what? What might? The, what's a telltale sign of a haunting? It's generally that like things start fitting together in a specific way. Um, so if we look at all the the proof synthesis work I did with with you on refinery, generally there's sort of these patterns that are kind of hiding in in the background where it's like I can tell something is going on here, but I can't exactly pinpoint what uh, and sometimes this may be like literal types like hey i'm seeing this sort of composition behavior show up time and time and time again in this program maybe there's something going on but other times it may be sort of more abstract like hey this thing is sort of preserving information in an interesting way something that comes to mind on that front is um, when i go to write like a functor instance or a monoid instance or maybe a monoid is a better example here because the compiler can't do it for me it's extremely boilerplate to write, but it's a thing that's surprisingly hard to automate. Is that sort of the sense in which things might be haunted? That, that's one sense. Um, but for me, the haunting normally comes a lot in sort of the definitions, but in the functions um, and the behavior of functions. So like a, a better example of a haunting would be like homomorphisms. Um, they show up absolutely everywhere but until you, you know to go looking for them you don't necessarily see them um, another example i don't want to get too often in the weeds here um, is sort of things that look like pre-sheaves um, once you sort of know what a pre-sheaf looks like um, you start seeing them absolutely everywhere and for an example that sort of haskell programmers might be more familiar with once you sort of learn you know what a monad is you go back to a different language suddenly the specters are everywhere. You know, you can see them all around. It's like, ah, 
I know what you are. I know what you're up to. Uh, I understand you now. Um, so uh, category theory just it, it makes us into better Ghostbusters. In a sense. <laughs> um, we're able to spot those ghosts more easily and, and realize exactly what's going on um, instead of getting tormented by poltergeists. That's a fantastic way of phrasing it and really, to, to me, drives home like, at least the feeling of what it is you're trying to articulate. I look at Python and I'm, you guys knew about monoids or monads, like your life would be so much easier. I get the impression that maybe that's what you and Bartosz are trying to tell me about category theory. Yes, the structures are there, whether you like it or not. You can try and fight against them or you can sort of go looking for them and, and try and understand the structures themselves and then kind of come back to the more concrete world with a, a better understanding of exactly what you're doing. To get a little, a little more abstract, I'm wondering if your knowledge of proof assistance and category theory sort of influences the way that you see the, the world. On one hand, I, I think it's super valuable to be able to sort of look at problems sort of in, in different domains and just sort of zoom out to the 10,000 foot view and go, okay, what's sort of really going on here? Um, what are the, the sort of actual problems here and, and what's just um, sort of incidental complexity that arises from these sort of root causes. Um, but I, I think that on the other hand, it's sort of, that's a, a dangerous way of thinking sometimes um, because sometimes the incidental complexity is actually quite important. Uh, and I think programmers especially have this sort of bad habit of looking at other domains and going, ah, I am smart. I can solve this with computers. And it's like, no, no, the computers aren't the issue here, buddy. So what are the issues then? I think it really depends on sort of the domain you're, you're talking about. Um, and I see this quite often with sort of social and organizational problems um, where someone will have some cool technology that they really love um, and then they try and go around and look for nails with their, their fancy new hammer. Um, this, again, mainly comes up with sort of organizational problems. Um, and cryptocurrency seems to be quite bad at doing this, um, where people will say, ah, this social ill, if only we had some sort of just decentralized way of organizing people with tokens and blah, 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 blah. We could solve all the world's problems. And it's like, that's not... The underlying technology is not fundamentally the issue here. These are people problems um, and, and sort of issues of personality and, and sort of personal conflict and competing interests like social or technology is, is just not going to solve this. These things have been around long before computers and they will probably remain problems, you know, far into the future. So, um, but I think this sort of perspective is important is after you've sort of done the research, engage with the problem directly, and sort of you have a good understanding of exactly what's going on in the situation. You're not coming into it as some sort of naive outsider who can just solve any problem because they can write code. Um, and only then just the sort of zooming out and going, okay, what's really going on here? That's, that's when it's valuable. Um, so I, I do think that it's important to be cautious about your own abilities that's good advice i think for for all of us me especially i often frustrate my partner by um assuming i can just solve problems in her domain without really knowing anything about it but you know like you said i'm i'm a programmer i'm smart so i can just fix things and 
it's a thing I'm working on, but yeah, and I don't want to say that programmers can't solve problems. Like some problems, computers are really good at them. For instance, um, some of the stuff that's been coming out recently, the sort of uh, using SMT solvers for various legal issues, um, I think that's super fascinating. And it's a great application of like tools to help people. Um, and sort of going off in a, a bit of a tangent here, um, I think a lot of the issues that sort of the, the programmer brain has is that I'm going to have you know people help the tools when it really should be sort of inverted. Um, you want to be making things for people in the domain who actually know what they're doing, make their lives easier. You know, sort of human focused. Um, and expert-focused design as opposed to just barging in and going, ah, you know, I, the thing, my hammer, look, it's so great and cool. Everyone should use it. Um, the best tool in the world doesn't matter if nobody uses it. And if it's not a joy to use or if it doesn't feel like it solves the problem, then nobody's going to use it, even if it might. Exactly. And sort of looping back, we've had this problem with, with proof assistance for quite a while now where... Uh, all the computer scientists were like, hey, look at these nifty tools we made, um, but we made them for us. Uh, and they're basically pretty hard to use unless you're an expert in dependent type theory and, you know, you have like a PhD and all this stuff. Um, so if you're a mathematician coming to these tools, it's like, what are these people doing? This doesn't look like the stuff I'm doing at all. Um, so I, I think there's been great work recently sort of reaching out to that community of experts and going, okay, what do you want? How can we sort of meet you halfway with the things that we've developed um, and make them actually usable to you? Um, and it's always quite interesting to hear what their problems are versus ours. Because um, often it's like, oh, I hadn't even considered that being an issue. Or we've been trying to solve this, you know, extremely hairy problem for like a decade. And it turns out you guys actually don't care about that. So, uh, <laughs> oops. What are some of the problems you see in the world right now? And, it, you know, if you were the philosopher king, like what changes would you make? So again, I want to lead off here with uh, the fact that I, I don't really know anything. So take everything I say with a heaping, heaping dose of salt. But the way I, I sort of see a lot of the problems right now, is sort of the root cause is a lack of um, sort of community and the ability to organize. Um, to, to make that more concrete, um, I think a lot of the changes we're going to need to make uh, in the coming years, sort of regarding like climate change, um, inequity, and justice, um, are going to be sustained efforts. It's not the sort of thing where you show up to a protest or something one day and then go home and then go look at all the good I do. We, we solved all the problems, you know. 2022, no more problems. Yeah. Um, it's the sort of thing that requires sustained action that isn't just at the personal level. Um, and I think that the way we have sort of society set up right now, it's quite difficult to be able to do that. Um, both on sort of the, the micro level of our, our cities are just not built for that sort of level of community. Um, and on the macro level where it's just, it, it seems like all the sort of systems and everything are set up to sort of atomize people and, and disintegrate community. Um, so if I were, you know, someone had the terrible idea of giving me any sort of meaningful power, which you really should not, um, that would be the direction I, I would push in is, is try and um, 
regain a, a sense of community and, and sort of rebuild the ability to organize. Um, and I, I don't have any concrete answers of how to do that. Um, like Solomon said on, on an earlier podcast, it's quite easy to point out the problems, um, but giving solutions is, is harder. But we, we also don't need giant macro scale changes. Like what are some maybe small things we could do in the way we live or in our communities that would maybe foster a better sense of community? Is it just going and meeting our neighbors or um, trying to find spaces to regularly hang out in or that sort of thing? So I think a large part of it is trying to build space where you can just sort of exist without sort of having to pay some sort of entry fee or, you know, anything like that. And not only spaces where you can just exist, having those spaces be sort of community organized and built for the community. Um, like right now, if you sort of think about it, the only place that you can really go and just kind of exist in the world uh, outside of your house without paying for anything are like parks or the library, both of which are awesome, awesome services. I don't want to denigrate those. Um, I, I use both pretty regularly, uh, but I, I think that we need more spaces like that. Um, more sort of cooperative businesses, for instance, um, with a, a real focus on providing services that the community needs and the community wants, um, and also having sort of local stakeholders um, and, and real local investment in, in those sort of businesses. Um, so yeah, more, more ground up sort of democratic institutions at the micro level, I think is, is the way to start. Is that a thing I can do without being like a business owner? Like if I host events at my house or something like, um, it seems challenging to require buy-in from lots of peers who, who might not get anything immediately out of it. And I'm wondering if there's a thing that we can do that might give the stakeholders more immediate value. And I, it, to me, that seems like how things are going to take off. Yeah, I think there's sort of two axes one can go here. It's providing more immediate, like, yes, this is something I, I desperately need, or lowering the initial payout or sort of buy-in. Um, so on the, the yes, I immediately am, am getting payout here. I think things like community disaster relief are going to be super important, um, especially in the coming years. Uh, if you've seen sort of, like I, I live in California right now and we've had some pretty gnarly uh, history of wildfires. Um, and I, I think having community organizations that are able to provide sort of aid and disaster relief when that stuff does come up is, is super important um, and can provide extremely immediate, like high value payoff um, in, in sort of the short term. Um, and the other option is just making it very easy to get involved in these sort of things, um, making it so that, you know, if you want to sort of work at the local like co-op or something, just like a couple hours a week or something, that's totally fine. You know, um, make it so that it's not a, a huge lifestyle change to get involved in these sort of things. You say you might not be a good choice for ultimate power, but I think I'd put you in charge if it were up to me. So <laughs> um, I've got one last question for you today, Reed. What advice do you think would be most impactful if people in our circles were to sort of pick up overnight? There are sort of two answers I would give here. Um, the first circling back is that it's easy to spend a lot of time doing nothing while feeling like you're doing something. Um, 
and maybe try and recognize when you are just shaving the yak um, and you're caught in these circles of, well, I'm putting all this stuff in this tool and all my energy into this, but ultimately I'm getting absolutely no sort of value or, or usefulness out of this thing. Um, so trying to self-assess these, these personal habits of yours, I think is, uh, is good. And I, I catch myself doing this all of the time. I am not free of sin. Um, and the second, I think, would be to be realistic about your sort of self-evaluations. Um, and am I actually an expert in this thing? Um, does it make sense for me to sort of barge into various spaces and proclaim that I have the answer to all of your problems? Um, and to realize that people who may do other things and think very hard about them, generally there's a reason that they do things. Um, sometimes there's not, but most of the time, if you sit and you listen to them, you realize that, yes, that there are reasons that they do things this way. Um, so be, be more receptive to listening and be more, more understanding of when you're just running in circles. How do you spot when you're running in circles? Is there a telltale sign? Yeah, generally, when I, when I catch myself doing this, I, I try and explain to myself, okay, what am I doing right now? Why am I doing it? And if I can't explain that to myself in a coherent way, generally that means what I'm doing is just a waste of time. Um, specifically, the why am I doing this? Um, it's, you end up sort of working your way up the stack of like, well, I'm doing this because of this problem, because of this other thing I'm doing, sort of all the way up. And then you realize the thing you were trying to do in the first place was just either a waste of time or incorrect. So making sure that you sort of check your call stack every once in a while is a good thing to do. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to have a chat. Yeah, no worries. Uh, pleasure. <laughs>